Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, the film podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Future Classics. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me for Future Classics Week, David Luzader, how are you? I am doing well. Happy to be here. How are you, Brett? I don't feel like we ever ask you how you're doing. I'm doing fine. I, You know, I got sick last week, so we had to postpone this recording. And I forgot how much being sick sucks because yeah. <laughs> none of us have been sick for like a year and a half, you know, if you're lucky because of all the masks. And but, the hand uh, washing. And, and the hand washing. I don't think I can go back. Sanitizing. I don't think I can go back. Go back to being sick? No, I don't think most people... I don't think that's most people's preferred state. Oh, no. I, I like went into to Trader Joe's yesterday. And, and, you know, as people listen to this, the mask mandate is long gone, but it's just gone now at Trader Joe's. And I walked in. I'm like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready for Did this. Did you go in and like lick all the produce or? <laughs> no, I was. No, both 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 my fiance Claire and I just like walked in. And we're like, mm, I'm going to keep the mask on for now. We're vaccinated. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm fully I'm fully vaccinated. But like I walked into the store and it was like 50 50 ratio. And I was like. This is, I don't, this is weird. I don't like, like it. I'm in the clear like to do that. Because like, like, it's been a reality for a year <laughs> right. and a half. So I'm just, I'm just yeah. so used to seeing it. Oh, yeah. it's, oh, it's so, it's so bizarre. There will be an adjustment period. There yeah. will be. Uh, Nicole Davis, are you still wearing a mask at Trader Joe's? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be wearing a mask in uh, crowded public spaces, such as yeah. restaurants and stores, and I will be wearing it on public transportation, and I dread the day oh, my boss yeah. says that it's time to start commuting again. Um, <laughs> but it is what it is. Oh, so. my gosh. If I was still living in Chicago, come time the commute, I'm in Austin now. It's Magic all moot at this point. <laughs> Good Goodness, would I still wear a mask on the CTA in Chicago, but I mean, that's just that's just good practice for most public transit. In I've seen too much, David. I've seen too much. The, you, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I will not miss you, Chicago L. But this week, future classics. Back to the movie talk, uh, David. It was your opportunity to pick a movie that you deem it's come out in the last decade that you believe will be a future classic. Before you announce it, Nicole, you have Around the World next week, which is a Around the World pick. It is international. What are we going to be watching if people want to follow along? I was sad that our Suspiria recording didn't work out back in the day. I know. Uh, <laughs> way back in like our first, I don't know, 10 episodes or something. We, like 2016, we earlier, like 2014 or something. God, is forever. Yeah. Oh, we, David, we've been doing this for like five years, man. I, I know. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> but I decided I wanted to circle back around to Giallo, and I'm going to pick a, a classic of classics, and we will be watching Profondo Rosso, Deep Red. Ooh, very cool. I'm excited. Which is on Prime at this time. I thought you All were right. about to say Suspiria again. No. <laughs> I was like, it's been long <laughs> enough. It's, it's fresh. No, I actually, I saw Deep Red for the first time just a few weeks ago uh, with my fiance and we watched that and it was, it was bizarrely delightful for a movie with so much stabbing in it. And that's what <laughs> I'm going to say. That's the tagline on the poster. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, David, you bring up an interesting point of like, 
at what point has it been so long that we can just have the same discussion again, but it'll likely be entirely different. And I want to test that at some point because we watched Mad Max Fury Road on the second episode of Geeks of Society, God knows how many years ago. And I think all of us would bring that to a future classics category at some point. Um, but I'd be interested to listen to two episodes back to back, like five years apart and see, <laughs> see what our thoughts are. So maybe we'll have to do that at some point. But this week is Future Classics as well, and it's Kubo and the Two Strings. Kubo lives a quiet life in a small shoreside village until a spirit from the past turns his life upside down by reigniting an age-old vendetta. This causes all sorts of havoc as gods and monsters chase Kubo who, in order to survive, must locate a magical suit of armor once worn by his late father, a legendary samurai warrior. So, David, briefly, before we get into our discussion, why did you pick it as a future classic? Okay, so the reason I picked it for a future classic is because it's really the only category that I could get this movie in on, and (laughs) I've wanted to discuss it on the show for a very long time. That is not to say I don't think this movie has a lot of merit. I think it, it absolutely does. Obviously, that like you know caveat ish time. Like I think it's an animation classic. I know it has its issues. I've had discussions about this movie ever since it came out, um, and not just about some of the the race stuff that we'll discuss in depth, but just kind of like I know it's not for everyone. The quality of the story doesn't hit for everyone, but I think it is a a beautiful film visually. Um, it is quite an interesting film. I think that it does have a lot of merit, and I'm I'm also just kind of pushing as a future classic in hopes of having more people see it um, because I feel like a lot of the like stop motion, especially what is it? Leica is the, the name of the studio that puts these together. It's they're still a little bit niche they're, they're I don't think they've fully broken into the mainstream. Um, they still get to, to make movies, which I'm super excited about and love that they do, but I want to do everything I can to kind of help maybe get them more in people's line of sight. Because I had not seen this before. Had you, Nicole? I had, yeah. But I think probably still their best-known movie is Coraline. Oh. Or Missing Missing Link (laughs) made a... Oh, no, had a huge budget and not, 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 never mind. I was reading those numbers backwards. But yes, (laughs) Coraline. And I feel like Paranorman was fairly well-known at the time that came out. Interesting. Okay, very cool. Now that you actually confirmed... One of my questions was, is it stop motion? Because I didn't look it up and I kind of assumed it was, but it, it's so fluid and, and it has this beautiful style to it. It it looks like if it was a tin bourbon movie, but people had flesh. That's kind of <laughs> the vibe I got at times. Um, it is indeed stop motion. Yeah. People actually had some meat on their bones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's still a good amount of... Um of cgi work in the film sure did you not did you not watch like through the credits when they showed the them animating the giant skeleton no i was just listening to regina specter and off making dinner (laughs) it's so it's so it's an eight is like it's the biggest stop motion figure ever it's like 18 feet tall i would recommend like going back and watching just that part in it where they actually show it like animate it's oh it's incredible what they did Oh, that's fantastic. I need to go back and look at that because we're talking about the 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 skull king dude that has all the swords in his head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's spectacular. That's really cool. I mean, it's it, it draws so beautifully upon, to my understanding anyway, and my cursory knowledge of how this was 
reacted to whitewashing aside, it seems to draw really beautifully from a lot of Japanese art and stylings. Yes. Yeah. It does, which I think is an asset in some ways and a liability in others in that um, it's been accused of not being exactly coherent in what it pulls from Japanese culture, that it's sort of more of a mosaic than an actual uh, capturing of a particular time and place. There's a really great, really great article I read earlier today. Um, and I meant to, I should have sent it to YouTube before. Um, and I'll make sure that we send it out when this episode comes out. It's from uh, the center for Asian American media. And um, it is by, I am pulling up his name right here on um, Sean Miura, who went and like saw the film and he, he really digs in to why he liked the film and also the issues you, he had with it. Um, and, and for him, like why it was so great to see these things that Hollywood very often gets wrong, um, done right. Um, while still having these frustrations with, with the casting and, and some of the other things like that. I, I think it's a really great breakdown of the film from that perspective and I think it's totally worth um, people reading to kind of, uh, as us as being three white people, which we can definitely talk about, you know, the ways that maybe it kind of fails is in in representing um, Asian actors. I think some of the cultural stuff, there's stuff that we're just not going to be in touch with that I think this article really um, encapsulated and like uh, painted for me in a really clear way. Yeah, we'll absolutely put that in our show notes. Because I suppose now is a good enough time as any to talk about the whitewashing controversy. And it's obvious. You know, you look at the cast and it's Rick on Stark. I hate Rick on Stark. Just total side jag. Screw that kid in Game of Thrones season eight. That aside, Rick on Stark, Matthew McConaughey, uh, Charlize Theron, Ray Fiennes, you know, uh, Rooney Mara. And, you know, George Sakai is there. And and this, this is the part that kind of frustrates me about some of these castings. And... I just feel like sometimes when they cast a movie like this, they're like, oh, but George Takai's here. And I'm like, that's not good enough. I love <laughs> and him. And he gets three lines. Right, right. I love him. Don't- <laughs> One of which is, oh my. Right. Oh my. Right, yeah. <laughs> and like, don't get me wrong. Give me more George Takai. George Takai. But um, I just feel like that's... Uh, do you guys understand what I'm getting at? That they, they they tend to just throw like one person of color in there and say it's good enough. Yeah. I Lucas did. Yeah. No, it's like, no, it's not. Absolutely. The big the big problem with this movie. You no, know, they can wave at it and say, "Look how many Japanese American voice actors we have in here," and it's like, yes, but they're all playing villagers who get mm-hmm. maybe one line a piece, and all right. the central roles are white people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they gave uh, George Takei like billboard billing, like his, he's on the yeah. poster and he's got like three lines, which is very obviously kind of an attempt of look, no, there's, there's Asians in here as well. Right. <laughs> and so. and it, it's this thing of like, if you read like the reasoning why this happens in Hollywood so often is like, well, you know, those big names like Charlize Theron and Matthew McConaughey, like draw people in though for animated movies. How much can you really even argue that? And it's that chicken and the egg scenario of, well, we need to cast the big names because bring, bring people in. And in Hollywood, most of the big names are white people. But it's like if we started casting Asians in these roles, they would start becoming bigger names and be those box mm-hmm. office draws that you're claiming you're clamoring for. Right. right. I think part of the reason it didn't do 
that well at the box office is because a lot of people stayed away in protest. They were uncomfortable with the idea of it, and so they didn't go. Really? I never... Even though there were big names in it. I know some people that I wasn't 100% comfortable going myself. Scarlett Johansson went twice. I don't know. I'm just, <laughs> sure she did. just ragging on Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Um. <laughs> but again, I don't want to undercut all the work that everybody else involved in the movie is doing. I'm going to drop it square on the desk of the producers and the casting directors. But the problem with saying that you want to get you know, the director claimed that they he wanted to get the best actors for the parts, you know, no matter what color they were, and they made all these efforts at inclusion, yada, yada, yada. So they went with the best actors for the parts, which is saying that there are no Asian or Asian American actors good enough to play these lead roles anywhere. Right. And That's... That is not the case. <laughs> That's, you could that, have had George Takei be the Moon King. You yeah. could have had oh, totally. the other fairly prominent Asian American actor that they had, Carrie Hiroyuki Tagawa, is in it, and he gets like two lines. Yeah, and you know he could have. I think he could have played the Moon King fantastically. He's very yeah. intimidating. He will. <laughs> he will tear. You know he'll. He will take your soul or whatever the hell the line is from Mortal Kombat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so right. your soul is mine that's it that's it he's the your soul is mine guy and he'd be awesome as a very intimidating moon king i can see into your soul you will die but yeah no so. that's that that argument of best person for the role the reason why that is so weak is something we're seeing play out online as casting for the sandman movie or sandman show on Netflix mm -hmm. has come out and uh, Kirby Howell Baptiste, who is a black woman was cast in the role of death And the death in the comics is typically depicted as a white person. Goth also, girl, kind yeah, of. goth girl, but also they are beings kind of without form. So even like how they present themselves, isn't really like what they're like, but people are getting really upset about the fact that it's like, she looks nothing like how the character is supposed to look, meaning like she's black and not white. And it's like, I thought we said best person for the role. <laughs> is that not? Yeah. Me? I mean, we're going to, we're going to have this conversation forever. I mean, I remember having conversations about black Hermione on, on Broadway and JK Rowling. And one of the few things she's maybe done right in the last couple of years, rightfully pointing out, like I never wrote her skin tone into it. Like she can be whoever I want her to be. <laughs> Um, All right, I don't want to say like it was no, but J.K. Rowling, that is a load of crap. She she had several points wrote some very clear descriptions of her mind. Like, I, oh, did she really? Okay, fair enough. It's great that a, a, a black Hermione was cast. She's back on the shit list. She's back on the shit list. Okay, <laughs> it's it's great that it was, but for J.K. Rowling to try to claim like I'm an ally the whole time, it's like no, you're not, you turf. Yeah, no, no, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Back on the shit list. But the point I, I wanted to make here is that I look at the last couple of years and even just the last year in in pop culture and film and i think part of it might be stemming from a a movement somewhat similar to black lives matter that has drawn a spotlight onto asian hate and asian um you know violence against against asians particularly in the united states and you see a, a not necessarily a groundswell because there's not enough of it yet I, wa I want there to be more but there's a lot of stuff coming up 
in like the Oscars, you know, it, you know, Pung Joon Ho is very well received now. There was Parasite, and then this year there was Minari, and then you know, um, Marvel hiring. I, I'm gonna butcher his name because Simu Simu Liu, who is uh, from Kim's Convenience, and he's the new Marvel superhero. And took them twelve years. Uh, th- and that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, it took them forever. I mean, and they that we we can have that conversation with them about female led movies and all that sort of stuff too, and you know, black led movies and you know, anyone who's not a white man. But uh, it seems like the culture's kind of starting to turn around in the better direction with that. They were starting to have, you know, Asian-created, Asian-led stories that are receiving more acclaim at award shows, not that they matter, are being cast in Marvel movies. Like, it, it seems like that's getting a little bit better. I mean, I'm sitting here as a white guy, so I understand that my perspective <laughs> of it, it means nothing. But at least from the outside looking in, it seems like maybe it's, maybe it's turning around in a slightly better direction. We're and by we're, I mean, kind of as a, as a global conscious, people are becoming more aware that Asian is not just another word for, or another way of saying other white people. Right. Yeah. I think that's like kind of the big thing. happening. Right. You know, for a long, Oh dear. (laughs) Let's really open the can of worms. You know, for a long time (laughs) in the U.S., the Asian American community, as diverse as it is, is often seen by the ignorant as a sort of uniform entity. Monolith, yeah, right. Yeah, as a a monolithic entity, even though there's a huge diversity in cultures across Asia. Um, Oh, yeah. But Asian Americans have often been painted as the, you know, quote unquote, model minority. Where there's a tremendous ethic in working hard and going into prestigious professions and not complaining ever about anything, really, and just quietly trying to live their lives. And it's becoming clear that that is not, it's not a protection (laughs) of any kind. They're still othered all the time. Asian Americans, a lot of times people will assume they don't speak English because of how they look. You know, there's a lot of a lot of assumptions made about people who have been here for several generations now and are American. Mm. But it's uh, I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> no, no, I, I understand what you're saying. There's, I, I there's do. some progress. There's incremental yeah. progress being made, but there's also a growing awareness that things are not as great for the Asian American community as the white community would like to believe. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I'm getting at. I I hope that there is a little bit of that incremental progress. We start to see more of that, you know, across all, you know, elements of of, of inclusion, just in film in general and, and all other popular media, because maybe that'll just make casting choices like this even more absurd in the future. I like all these people on their own. They belong in a Wes Anderson movie. It's weird that they're all casted here. Um, I just don't love it. Wes Anderson made his own movie with Asian American people and white people. <laughs> oh, I know. I'm just saying, like half the cast here has built. I guess maybe I'm just thinking of Ray Fiennes. But and like, that one, and that one, arguably does a worse job of othering the yeah. Asian characters by having none of them speak English the whole time. Right. Yep. Yeah. All right. So uh, it's a problem. Does it negate from your enjoyment or lack thereof of the movie? Uh. I mean, I will say I recognize it as a mark against the film 
Um, and I think it's 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 important to recognize that hey, this is an area they could have done better. Um, yeah. But I don't think it, it for me at least, and um, it, I don't think it diminishes everything with the film. But I, I know Nicole, it sounds like it's been a, it's been a, an issue for you. And it's not one I'm ever going to argue with somebody of like don't care about this. Like that would be stupid of me. To yeah, do. it it doesn't make me dislike the movie. It just makes me like it less because they i think they could have done better you know i I was looking at the credits hoping for hey thanks to these people as our advisors on this that and the other and the biggest roles i could find in production for asian americans were in costuming and uh, the choreography for the dance that's going on at the festival and that's pretty much it until like a giant block of and thanks to these people and organizations at the very end of the credits which very few people stay for right and so and, you know uh, there's a another thing that came out last or was it last it was recently um ghost of tsushima which is a game made by like an american studio and and because this is one thing that like in my understanding, it's, it's a little bit limited here, but the Japanese actually really love it when people engage in their culture. Like they loved Ghost of Tsushima. And I read some reactions from some people in Japan saying like they love that there was a lot of care taken like in this movie. I think what Ghost of Tsushima does better then is that in the voice acting, even in like the English voice acting, they still cast uh, Japanese actors in the role. But I've been playing that game entirely in Japanese because that only felt right to me. Um, to do yeah. it and i think it's a good choice and i'm still salty that it's not on xbox yeah because sucker. i would love to play that game it's um, gorgeous gorgeous yeah. yeah no it's beautiful <laughs> so uh let's go down some of our other discussion oh actually briefly one step back last week we watched little door gods or the guardian brothers depending on yeah. which version you saw and they in that case were handed a chinese film that needed local di- localized dialogue and they gave it no care here great care was taken to every aspect for them just to drop the ball with most of the casting that was your point david it's, it's very interesting to look in the contrast between the two because the other one got weinstein and then this one got you know the casting it got and that's also partially why i picked the movie for this week because um, i thought it would be an interesting film to discuss in contrast of all that Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So you're telling me you couldn't find somebody to be like the granny character other than Brenda Vaccaro. Now I right. love Brenda Vaccaro. You know, <laughs> I've if- loved Brenda Vaccaro ever since Zorro the Gay Blade. But <laughs> she's not uh, how do I put this? You would expect to find Brenda Vaccaro in like the Towering Inferno. But not say, you know, the English patient. Does that make sense? (laughs) (laughs) You're hating on Towering Inferno? (laughs) I know, it's a star studded cast, but all of them slumming it. Um, I'm just saying, you know, Brenda Caro is a particular, she's a particular kind of character actress. And I think there are a million fantastic Asian American character actresses who could have done that part. Yeah. Yeah. I just discovered though, that she voiced Johnny Bravo's mom in Johnny Bravo. So that's (laughs) exciting for me. I haven't thought about Johnny Bravo in a long time. I never stopped thinking about Johnny Bravo. Bravo. Is that, is that an issue? (laughs) And I've never thought of Johnny Bravo. (laughs) (laughs) 
That is that's a deep cut to my youth. I haven't thought about in a very long time. Um, man, that hair. So See the monkey with me. Now back r- to this film with the monkey. R- <laughs> so, oh my god, the monkey. Okay, let's just one of my quips of this movie. So the monkey, when the mom turns into a monkey. But he doesn't know that she turned into a monkey. Right. He lives in a cave with his mom. He can't go out at night because then the moon king, who is his grandfather and his aunts, um, will find him and take his other eye because they took his first eye when he was a baby. And the mom's trying to protect him. He stays out past dark. The sisters come, the, the two aunts, they try to get him. The mom saves him, but in doing so, he turns into a gremlin, converts oh. into a monkey, and has the same voice. And I just want to know why is he, okay, A, why is he not picking up on the fact that this is clearly his mother with the exact same voice? Um, and even in the subtitles of the movie, he says, in the mother's voice. <laughs> like, now. And then, two, how is she not picking up on Beetle being her husband when he probably has the same voice, too? One, we don't know that he had the same voice. Um, they don't, I'll, they don't I'll know give if they, it that. They, I'll give they it that. They conflicted him with uh, Matthew McConaughey. And two, do you think maybe Brett, you're you're reading too much into this. <laughs> it upsets me. No, it upsets me. <laughs> that's okay. Well, I mean, that, I, I think it's her spirit. And I think that's supposed to be like our, our cue of like, it's her spirit in this thing. I, if my mom turned into me. a monkey, I would still recognize her voice. That's all I'm I saying. It's a, I think it's a fair criticism, but I think you can also say one Kubo is very young. He's only like 10 or 11. Yeah. And two, if you don't expect, a person's you know a a person's spirit to be in something otherwise unrecognizable you your brain might not put two and two together you know if i heard my mother's voice coming out of my cat i might not recognize (laughs) it as my mother's voice immediately because it's coming out of my cat and i'd be more focused on the fact that my cat was talking I think that's fair. I, th- I think there's a lot of movies that I watch where I'll be like, that person's voice is so familiar. And then I found it's a John Hamm who I'm right. like, you know, in love with. And I'm like, I, I watched this movie for, for 40 minutes and know it was John Hamm. Oh, it took me a solid half hour to figure out McConaughey. For some reason, I just couldn't place it. I just How? couldn't. Really? Well, I, I just couldn't. Actually, no, I, I do give him a little bit of credit. He's trying yeah in a rare rare mcconaughey squash the texas accent he's trying but there's some there's some points though where it just it it, leaks out hits (laughs) yeah yeah like when he calls himself samurai you know yeah (laughs) you used to be a man no not just any man a samurai i mean i'm pretty certain look I have the stuff. I mean, I'm either a samurai or a really bad hoarder. Either way, inside my thorax beats the heart of a warrior. No, no kidding. Uh, no, it took me a hot minute <laughs> to really identify him for some reason. Um, samurai. The flirting between the monkey and the beetle. And you know it's his parents. Like, we all yeah. know this. And it's it's cu- it's cute. It's cute. But Can I say? Oh, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, no. No, just one of my favorite lines in the movie I'd forgotten about um, was when he's like, first question, if I'm Beetle and you're Monkey, why isn't he called Boy? (laughs) It has some really cute dialogue. It does. Yeah, it does. It does. It's cute. It's, you know, again, it's the putting two and two together thing. You're expecting a lot of a 10 year old. (laughs) 
Fair to enough. figure this out. Yeah, you also- a monkey and a beetle. And they also, they do drop other clues. Like the mother says, you know, when she met his father, that he was really funny, <laughs> you know, and warm and that she was always very serious, you know, and he helped her to be more in tune with humanity and the world and everything. But, and that's what yeah. happens in their relationship. Yeah. And as the monkey and the beetle. And they so, bicker sure. like an old married couple. Yes, they do. Yeah, they do. <laughs> but they also flirt like an old married couple. So. Yeah. I strive to be that gross and cringeworthy one day. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, here's my issue with the movie though. Uh, kid aside, not recognizing his mom. I thought this was a beautiful movie. And I really, really thought the visuals are stunning. I just don't, for me, I, I don't know if I cared. And I guess what I mean by that is that they do such a poor job of fleshing out the, the backstory of anyone. I don't know why he has this this two-string, I'm totally blanking on what the, it's a three-stringed instrument. I'm, it starts with an S. I'm blanking on what it's called. Shamisen. Yes, thank yes. you. I don't know why he has this shamisen and why that happens to be the magical thing, why that happens to be something that seems like it might have been passed to him from his mom because she can also use it to do magical things. We don't get a lot of context into, you know, the, the, the why do they want your eyes so they can be blind to humanity? Like, that's, that's not fun. Like, and also, <laughs> I'm going to save the day with the power of love. Like that, that's not fun either. Like, I just, I feel like there's so many opportunities to dive into these characters and they're so unique and interesting. I want to know more about this whacked up family. Like these sisters are so cool. They're like these flying zombie drones with Guy Fox masks on and can summon <laughs> smoke and they're really rad. And like, I want to know more about this family and I just get so precious little. And I understand that they're giving you that because in 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 turn, Kubo doesn't have very much about his family, so you only really know as much as he knows. But just we we just get nothing. There's just nothing there, and and that bummed me out because it's a beautiful movie, but I just have trouble connecting with the characters because of it. No, I could see that. I could see that, and I think I think the ants are wearing um like no masks, and that's a a cultural thing that we're missing the significance of that particular type of mask, like we saw with uh, Throne of Blood. Mm-hmm. This is one where I think the casting might have been done right because Rooney Mara is really freaky. Yeah, <laughs> She's right. Super she freaky as the two sisters. <laughs> Come, Kubo. Come to your aunties. No reason to be afraid, Kubo. We just need your eye. Your grandfather admires it so. Where was I going with this? Yeah, no, the emotional connection. Yeah, it, it's it's not easy. It isn't. You're right. I don't... I do feel some connection to, like, monkey. But I think that's because I'm a mom, and I understand mm-hmm. that protective instinct and needing to protect your kid from themselves sometimes. But also trying to figure out when to let go and let them make their own mistakes and when you think it's safe for them to make their own mistakes and it's all very you know that that's the one thing i can really identify with but i did find it hard to connect with you know some of the other roles 
This is something that I, and I've had this discussion with someone in the past kind of at length um, who, who had a, a similar criticism and I, and I get it. Um, I think where I'm kind of willing to overlook it is I just viewed this so much as like a fairy tale um, that, you know, in fairy tales, you maybe don't always necessarily get that stuff. And, yeah, and so it's a bit maybe surface level in part in some of the characterization. Um, and, and maybe it was just like, I was so enraptured with the, with the beautiful look of the movie and, and you know, how much uh, care was taken into like, like that boat is made up of like an absurd amount of leaves placed by hand and all of it just shown through in the details and like this adventure quest and all of it rubbed off on me in a way of like, yeah, sure. It's got its flaws, but I was just transported for a <laughs> hundred minutes and, Sometimes that's all I want out of a movie. Yeah, and there that's is fair. no getting around how gorgeous this movie is. And I believe I read it was somewhere around a quarter of a million leaves were placed by hand on yeah. that boat. Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, so. I, by, yeah. Oh, it's it's just like the, the, the dedication that Leica right. has is insane, and it, yeah. it comes through. Yeah, it's absolutely. a huge amount of time and labor to make a stop motion animation film especially one as detailed as this. Yeah. You know, they're not trying to get away with the simplified backgrounds or, um, you know, a more slightly more cartoony looking characters. I mean, they're, you know, they're very stylized, but they're oh, yeah. detailed. There's details in the stylizations, like the robe that Kubo's wearing looks like cloth and has yeah. a tremendous amount of detail on it. Um, so. the snow, the texture yeah. on the snow is incredible. Right. Yeah. The paper, the yeah. Yeah. paper, you can see that it's handmade paper. You can see like the grains in it. You can see that it's a little bit lumpy like it is when you make paper by hand. You know, they so much care and detail and love. And can we talk about the scene where he's telling the story? With the shamisen for the crowd in the village, and it's the you know the origami figures acting out this story. Oh, wow, that's so cool! Absolutely transporting. You know, I yeah, I'm gushing, but this <laughs> part of the movie is gush worthy. It's oh, it's tremendous. It's like they could have made an animated like cut scene, like where it cuts away to like the story of his father, and instead found just so much of a more compelling way to handle it. And you're right. It's just stunning. And there's a fire breathing chicken, which is uh, <laughs> the crowd always loves. Yes. It starts shooting eggs. Uh, right. Yeah. No, I, I love that part of it. And I, I also appreciate the expansiveness of it being stop motion, but also just the, the loca- locations in which it's in. A lot of times when you see a stop motion film, everything's very, compartmentalized and, and in smaller type little sets because there's a reason for that because of the way it's being created but to see these lush fairy tale like landscapes that are just throughout the whole movie and they go to like so many different types of places that are green and yellow and snowy and and the belly of a whale <laughs> like it's just I, they go to such a wide variety of locales and it's just one's more stunning than the next there was no shortage of imagination when it came to the set design. Yeah. And that's a place too, where like CGI is finally caught up with what they want to do, where they can now make 
backgrounds and stuff like that. Cause a lot of green screen was used for those more open outdoor scenes, but it's now gotten to a point where they can make that look as good as the models and figures they were using. And, and they used it beautifully. Absolutely. 100% agreed. There's also an underwater scene, the garden of mm, eyes. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on the garden of eyes, Nicole? If I'd seen that when I was like seven, I would still be traumatized. <laughs> no getting in the water anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like ever. Well, <laughs> I had enough trouble, you know, taking a shower after seeing Psycho much too young. Oh. There's no way with the Garden of Eyes that you would have caught me going in the in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, you don't want to get eaten by a giant maw of teeth opening up? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they really make it scary and creepy and horrifying you know he's gonna drown and be eaten and he's not inspelled by like some adorable or beautiful creature with beautiful eyes down in the deep it's this horrible monster that still compels him to look at it and it's and and this isn't the first time in the movie that they, they don't shy away from this like not grotesque is not, I mean, that was kind of grotesque, but also like some of this would really bother me if I was a kid. Uh, I mean, there's the opening scene of the movie is his mother on like a paddleboard type thing, essentially fighting the tidal waves of the moon King. And she gets knocked off of the plank and just careens to the ocean floor and slams her head on a rock and Mm -hmm. blood spurts out. (laughs) And, And then, is you know found ashore and like i don't see that in pixar (laughs) and that's (laughs) one thing i really appreciate like this the movies like this know like hey kids can sometimes handle when things are a little bit dark and and a little bit creepy right again this is the studio that brought us Coraline and Norman. (laughs) yeah you know, lighthearted films about <laughs> exactly uh, the sisters. Though I just, I, I'm going back to that. I know, but I just want like a spinoff of just like the sisters hanging out and like just what they're doing because it is that is the coolest aesthetic to me in the entire movie, and it's and it's brought with such beautiful color design. Like wherever, whenever they show up, there's these smoky fogs that they roll in with magic that are like bluish green and and. Then they themselves, whenever they're on camera, everything gets like stormy and dark and like these deep blues, you know, just start appearing everywhere. I love that about this movie is that each one of the characters brings a very specific tonal change in the design, you know, just like how the Moon King shows up and everything's light blue and happy until he turns into a serpent. Yeah. Let's talk about that. <laughs> the, but when, when the yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah. When the sisters first show, it's such a great introduction because there's there's all those lanterns that go out in that sweeping shot. And then it just cuts to them. And they're just like standing there, you know, uh, hat over their face. I remember like in the theater being like, Oh, like, Oh no. And they blow out all the lanterns in order as they're flying over them. Yeah. But you can't see them at first. So Creepy. good. Yeah. Um, and they do it all without you seeing any facial expression. Mm-hmm. On them. Yep. The mask is just stays the same. And yet the, the menace is very clear. Oh, yes. 
It is very, very clear. Um, moving on to some of our other discussion topics, I was really going, I was ready to complain about how this instrument has three three strings and not two, but it brought it full circle at the end. He uses two, he has two strings at the end when he uses the string from his dad's bow and then his mom's hair to kind of play that final note to use the power of love to defeat Ray Fiennes. Um, that worked. That I mean, like in terms of in terms of of it being Kubo in the two strings, I'm glad they brought that full circle. I was going to be very annoyed. Well, you yeah, thought they just you thought the... they named it randomly? I was just like, "What is this? This has three strings," and I couldn't get over it. It was like inhibiting my enjoyment of the movie. Uh, they didn't mention it actually in a couple of the trailers. They just called it Kubo, Kubo. Mm-hmm. and just had and the two strings like up on screen. Yeah, um, when they were announcing it, but I take issue with saying that it's just the power of love that defeats everything. Yeah. It's also it's it? also the power of lies. <sighs> All the villagers lie oh. to him about what kind of person he is and the role that he plays in the village. Right. I mean they but I mean even before that, like in order to defeat the flying serpent that he turns into, he strums out a chord of love, says, you know, something to the effect of, you know, you can't stop the love and then like a force field comes around the entire na- the entire to town be fair to be fair the a whole 10 year old with a sword is not going to be able to take yeah. on a god yeah <laughs> i understand movie, the whole movie people are like he's getting really powerful he's got a lot of magic yeah mm-hmm. that's fine Sure, <laughs> you guys. But yeah, the power of lies. Um, the heartwarming central message is that it's good to distance yourself from toxic family members. I, uh, I think you nailed that, uh, Nicole. I think that is very much a heartwarming message that children should really take the heart. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's a lesson that children really need to learn. It's, it's okay it's to choose your family okay. or brainwash them. Exactly. Exactly. It's it is okay to say. Even though I'm related to that person, I don't have to have a relationship with them if mm-hmm. I don't want to. If I, you know, if I'm old enough to be off on my own, I don't need to talk to that person. I, you know, and hopefully, if you're too young to be off on your own, your parents are protecting you from the toxic people if they're not the toxic ones themselves. And can we talk <sighs> yeah. about the mom letting her kid feed her? When she's capable of walking on her own, I understand that she has periods of like lucidity and periods where she's catatonic, but it's gross. It's gross making your kid care for you when she can do it at least intermittently. I don't know. There's a lot of weird helicopter parenting going on there, but I suppose. Reverse helicopter parenting in some ways. (laughs) David, you had something? I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like, you know, it's shown that she is like catatonic during the day. And that seems to be the hours of like, they are active because they do like sleep at night after a little bit of time together. I don't know. He's, he's taking care of her. It's not like she had the ability during the daytime to be feeding herself. But, but I mean, is it because she's, you know, formerly some sort of, of like nighttime sky goddess or... I don't quite See, and understand. That's, I, you know, Moon King, I grasp. I get yeah. that. I don't quite get what the sisters symbolize. Well, they're daughters of the, the Moon King. So I took it as like the nighttime is their time. 
I guess. And I see that's why I wanted more of that sort of stuff because I like I'd love to understand more of and I realize it's it's a big ask in a in a ninety minute children's movie, but um I, I want a little bit more of that family. I just think that family is so cool and they could have done a lot with that. Yeah. 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 So I mean, it's interesting to see uh, I don't know, but I mean <clears throat> Doesn't that kind of contradict a little bit what you said earlier about not being able to connect with the characters because these characters are, you know, supposedly disconnected from humanity. But I mean, if they're disconnected from humanity, I want to understand, you know, their roles in this family and what this family looks like. And, you know, it's just because all we're given is that she's sent down to kill a man because he thinks he's too powerful. And apparently that's the moon dude's job to keep those dudes in check. And then she falls in love with him because he says something sweet to her. And that's all we know about her. That's like, that goes back to the fairy tale thing for me of like totally, totally fair criticism. But also it's like, how many stories do we hear where it's like, and they met and he was like, you're beautiful. And she was like, what? (laughs) <laughs> no one's ever said that to me before. <laughs> right, right. No, but I hear what you're saying, Nicole, because like, yeah, there is this whole point that like they, particularly with the eye metaphor, my God, the eye metaphor. I, I'm not a huge <laughs> fan of the eye metaphor, but like, yes, it makes, also, how did he not pick up on the fact that when, I understand he's a child, but I'm only going to give him so much credit that in this dream, he's not being manipulated by someone who is very clearly his grandfather. Because he's a child. Come on. Literally at one point, he's like you have no eyes <laughs> like that is kind of his grandfather's shtick he like, doesn't know yeah. anything all he knows about his he grandfather knows. is yeah that he knows it's his grandfather but yeah Does he it? knows his grandfather's supposedly this awful person but in the you know in this dream he's having the grandfather is being kind or at least acting kind now let me ask you Brett, if you had a dream tonight where your <laughs> grandfather was like brett you gotta go to Lincoln, Nebraska, and <laughs> and dig up my gold under a bar. Would you be like, my grandpa's manipulating me? <laughs> hey, it was a dream. If I knew my, if I was on a quest specifically designed to get armor, so my grandpa would not kill me, I'd be a little sus. Like, <laughs> okay, but you're ten years old. <laughs> Let's go back. <laughs> like, Speaking of the quest, this is actually, and this is not a knock toward the film, but but it was something interesting I found out, um, or just that I thought while watching this movie, which is that I'd never quite seen a movie to me that felt like I was playing a video game. And what I mean by that is like, there's not a lot of connective tissue between the scenes. It's very much just like, now you're in Snowland, and then after that, you're in greenland not the country but it's the color green and now there's just like a skeleton dude and it's just like to me it was just very much like the waypoint like a literal mini origami dude pointing his sword is telling you which direction to walk in and then every new scene is a different locale where you've just happened to find exactly what puzzle you need to solve or thingamajig you need to get and it just it it was interesting to me because i just i couldn't put my finger on it and like oh it's like i'm watching a video game but i'm only i'm not playing i'm just watching all the cutscenes. and i don't think i'm not i don't mean that to sound like it's a negative it just felt like the connective tissue between those scenes didn't really exist 
I get. I mean, I, I get that. Like, it does have a video game quality of like you're on a mission, you're yeah. collecting the things. It's a fetch quest. Yeah, you, know, you have to get particular objects, and you have- yeah, <laughs> get seven wild boar hide. <laughs> right, and you have yeah. to defeat uh, several mini bosses before you get to the big boss at the end. <laughs> yeah, but let's um, talk about the mini bosses though. But that video game storytelling comes from fairy tale. Yeah, it does. Storytelling yeah. as well and mm-hmm. mythology. So in a lot of cases. No, you're absolutely right. Um, but I, I do want to hone in on the the mini bosses because <laughs> we haven't really talked a lot about Skeleton Dude. And that is the coolest thing on earth. And, and, and I know you said at the beginning of the show that it was this 18 foot tall, you know, stop motion figure, which is even more impressive. But just the scene, the way it's done is just so impressive and so interesting and unique. And I'd never seen anything quite like it as a, you know, giant skeleton demon. Yeah, it's rad. <laughs> it's very rad. And they throw in just enough touches of humor where Beetle pulls out a sword and he's like, ah, and then it snaps two seconds. <laughs> yeah. This might not be the right one. yes yeah absolutely and then uh i guess as we begin to to wrap up here i did not watch those credits which i know is is much to my detriment now yeah i have to go back but i listened to the credits and (laughs) time for brett to talk about the beatles um (laughs) (laughs) oh i had never heard this cover before Oh, I, oh my God! I immediately went and found it on like on on Spotify and and you know all that jazz because it's Regina I mean, Spector. I'm not going to argue with you about this one. Yeah, it's, it's Regina good. Spector doing "While My Guitar Gently Weeps" with all the string orchestration um, and string instruments, rather not really orchestration. Um, but it's so unique and so cool. And there's a music video of it online of her doing it for this movie. You know, it was commissioned for this movie, and. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of hers. She's so talented and it was the right song for it. And also like, it's just kind of jarring for a moment and then pleasantly surprising because at the end of the movie, you start hearing those like iconic moments of the beginning of while well, my guitar gently weeps, but it's done in that, that Japanese musical style. And you're like, wait a minute. I know this. <laughs> oh, so cool. I just yeah. am in love with that. It's, it's great. That's all I got. <laughs> I just want, I want the rave about the Beatles. I yeah, got there. it's one of those Universal things. acclamation. <laughs> yeah, it's something that that's rare that I think, well, not rare, but it's like, there's very few times where it's like a cover comes from a movie that I'm like, oh man, like, I, I want to tell people about this. Like I've told people about this cover and showed people this cover of the song independent of the movie entirely. I'm like, it's just that good. Check it out. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's hard with the Beatles in particular, because their music is so recognizable that it, to me anyway, it can pull you out. Like it it can just totally remove you from the immersion Mm -hmm. that you might have, but to do it in the style they did it with, with, with the vocalist they did it with, you know, Regina Spector worked really well. Uh, Yeah. And it was a cool song pick. I mean, it was, it would have been different if they were, you know, Know, yellow submarine at the end i don't know why they <laughs> now i want to hear that version a song about a stringed instrument and they did yellow submarine would have been weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah 
I mean, who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe there's a song in Japan about a shamisen that's equally popular as Wild My Guitar. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it, it's, it just doesn't scan quite the same. Yeah. <laughs> put together. Um, uh, but yeah, and I mean, it's, it's vaguely, if you listen to the lyrics, they're vaguely appropriate to the, to the sure. story as well. Yeah. You know, whatever. And yeah. You know, George Harrison's crippling it's, depression. Yeah, I'm glad they waited until the end of the movie. I'm glad they put it over the end credits and didn't try to fit it into the body of the movie. Oh, oh yeah, that would have been, been so, so bad. Yeah, that, that would have been like last week's movie. Just, I mean, it wouldn't have been as bad as Kung Fu fighting in the middle of that movie, oh, but boy. it certainly would have been... <laughs> A careless whisper dropped in. <laughs> no, 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 no. That was great. That was great, Nicole. <laughs> and you know it's great because they kept it in both versions. Yeah. Yes, they <laughs> decided it worked twice. Oh, my gosh. Well, uh, Kubo and the Two Strings, let's go around the horn and see whether or not we we have determined it a future classic. Uh, Nicole, we'll start with you. Is it a future classic? I would say, at minimum, it is a classic of animation already. It is, it's a stunning achievement in stop-motion animation. It's a beautiful story. It's, I think the writing is fantastic, at least in terms of the dialogue. And it's, you know, all the performances are great. It's, it's an excellent movie. It's one that I would, you know, recommend with the, the caveat that you understand that there are issues with it and why there are issues were with it and how they can do better next time. Like, uh, pay attention. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, I, I'm in a similar boat. You know, I, I do have those aforementioned difficulties with the, the the lack of depth to some of the story and and when i was you know browsing around on r slash movies and people you know fighting each other about it it seemed like that was a you know not an uncommon sentiment but at the same time i think you guys have also won me over with with the mentality that it is it is a fairy tale and you don't need some of that and i i really just think that the technological accomplishment of the stop motion things like the boat and the skeleton are truly incredible and truly beautiful and the way it makes it feel so expansive and big and lived in versus, you know, what you might traditionally think of a stop motion picture is, is really remarkable. So I, at the very least, I think absolutely will it be something that future stop motion animators are going to be looking at for a long time to come. Uh, David, any closing thoughts on your future classic pick? Uh, No, I thought that you, you know, all the criticisms that have been brought in have been um, valid. Um, I definitely didn't claim that this was a, a flawless movie. And um, I'm just glad that you, you know, Brett, you as a, a person who had not seen it before, uh, had at least enjoyed it. And I'll just, I'll reiterate that if, if you haven't seen it out there, especially if you have kids, I think this is a great movie. If you're tired of the, the, the things that kids are always watching, it's like, oh, I wish that we had something maybe a little bit different this is a great one. I recommend this to, to friends with kids all the time who are like, I need like a new movie to show them. I'm like, here you go. Yeah. If I have to strings. watch the Lion King one more time, I'm going to lose my <laughs> mind. What are you, my parents? <laughs> <laughs> no, oh man. Um, we missed that window. Fortunately for me. So, <laughs> Oh, um, well, wonderful. I, I uh, thought this was a great pick, David. I, I really enjoyed seeing it. But a uh, reminder next week, Nicole, for Around the World, what are we watching? Deep Red in Italian, Profondo Deep Rosso. Red. Is, it, is it one of those things where they're all speaking 
in their own native tongues, and we just kind of have to jive with it? Yes. Yes. Nice. It's a giallo movie. It's a movie made in Italy in the 1970s, so everything is dubbed up to the gills. Nice. So oh, I'm digging this it's poster. Technically, a f- you know, it's it's a foreign-made movie. You would be hard-pressed to find a version that's entirely in Italian. So yeah. I don't know how that falls in language requirements, but it's absolutely an Italian movie. <laughs> right on. Very good. We'll check that out for next week. But a reminder, you can also find the show on Podchaser and Apple Podcasts. We're really trying to get a couple more reviews over there, get more people into the tent. That way, when we do You Did This to Us, there are more of you to do whatever it is that you want to us with that poll where you can vote on what we're going to watch. That's why you, we've watched things like Twilight and <sighs> some other emoji movie and why and cats. Oh, cats. How do they forget cats? Dunstan checks in. Dunstan checks in. That's, that's, the I first would want 10 million times that I watched Dunstan checks in over half the stuff <laughs> that's been <laughs> voted for. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you there. But should you want to get more people in the, that tent, again, Podchaser and iTunes, or I guess now Apple Podcasts. Let's go around the horn one more time, though. Where can we find everyone? David? Davluz, as D-A-V-L-U-Z, Twitter, Instagram, follow me there. And also hit me one more time, my other podcast. Check it out. And Nicole? On Letterboxd, I am Nicole underscore Davis, and I run the Facebook page for our group, facebook.com slash Podcast. Absolutely, and find all of our links on social.mgrpodcast.com. But that'll do it for myself, David, and Nicole. We will see you next week with Deep Red Around the World. Mm-hmm.